I-V-M It's election week in India. And as we wait to see who will form the next union government and who will become our next prime minister, it's a great time to listen to the words of Dr. Jayaprakash Narayan again. Hi, I'm Pavan Srinath and welcome to the Pragati Podcast. Dr. JP recorded a podcast episode with us flagging off the year 2019. The challenges he outlines for India's democracy and development are relevant today for a new government that is coming into power. Do listen to this rebroadcast of episode 76 of the Pragati podcast and we'll be back with a new episode next week featuring Narayan Ramachandran on what should be the agenda for the new government. Welcome to 2019. We are headed for a very eventful year in Indian politics, if not in Indian public policy as well. But can we set the events and the developments of 2018 and 2019 in the appropriate context? How should we be thinking about India, the Indian Republic, more than 70 years after Indian independence? Dr. Jayaprakash Narayan is here on the Pragati podcast today to help us understand what we as a nation and a state have achieved and just how far we need to go from here. Welcome to the Prakriti Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics and international relations. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath. Dr. JP needs no introduction from me. Starting his public career as a very successful IAS officer, Dr. JP has been spearheading change in India as a bureaucrat, as a politician, as a policy researcher, a powerful advocate and so much more. I managed to talk to Dr. JP on the sidelines of a leadership in public policy workshop by the British High Commission in New Delhi, late in November 2018. My colleague Anupam Manur and I conducted a two-day workshop in public policy for 35-plus professionals across the country, and Dr. JP was kind enough to make time as the keynote speaker there and as a guest for the first Pragati podcast episode of 2019. We'll be back with Dr. JP after this short break. This episode of the Pragati Podcast is brought to you by Savari. Savari is a fantastic cab rental service, perfect for when you want to head out to the city for a few days or when you want a cab with you for a few hours as you go from one engagement to another in town. I use Savari often and they have a variety of cars and packages to pick and choose from. Savari has excellent chauffeurs and 24 by 7 customer support. Use the coupon code IVMTRAVEL for 250 bucks off on your next rental and get another 300 off as cashback on Amazon Pay. You can book your cab on Savari.com, on the Savari mobile app or via their call center. Welcome back. Dr. JP, thank you so much for recording with us on the Pragati podcast. We are here in Delhi early in the morning to do this. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. We are now about to start the year 2019. And as it would be obvious, I think at least for half the year, if not the other half of the year, many Indians will be thinking about the upcoming 2019 elections. And uh, there are already state elections that are underway. Then post the 2019 general elections, more will be underway. But could you tell us a little about how we should think about our democracy? and Why is it that even when we have a robust system of elections where we are trying to elect various people into power, trying to think about governance and trying to elect the right people in, 
transforming India and trying to get to a much better place has always been a challenge. Pawan, if you want to examine the success or failure of a democracy, there are two broad ways. The aggregate level, did the nation retain its unity and integrity? Could we preserve freedoms? Is there peaceful transfer of power and orderly transfer of power? Are there systems and institutions to overall protect the integrity of the system and the, and the nation? Are we able to handle diversity in a harmonious manner? These are the broad questions. Mostly they have been uh, determined in the first 10, 15, 20 years of our republic. I think the answer is on the whole a resounding yes. Because in all these questions, no. take for instance language. There is no country that can even remotely match India's linguistic diversity. Countries with just two languages, like for instance Sri Lanka, because they could not handle the diversity, there was so much of strife for decades and even now the reverberations are being felt. Pakistan broke up largely in language and culture within 25 years. And the United created. States with um, some Spanish now entering. Uh, exactly. A lot of schism. Belgium, a tiny country, equal to one of our small states, because there are two languages, the Dutch and French-speaking peoples. Uh, they're not able to handle. Governments are often not formed for months and years. You can go on and on. And then look at India, 22 languages. In any group, like for instance, yesterday, Takshila Foundation had a group of uh, bright uh, young people from all over the country. I'm certain that they represent almost all these language groups in the country. And I'm certain if they spoke in their native tongue, the mother tongue, uh, almost nobody else would understand in that group. That India could achieve unity and cohesion and handle this language diversity with enormous dexterity is a miracle. We don't realize it because we don't really understand that the rest of the world finds it amazing. In fact, if the non-Indians, I don't think they're fully aware of our linguistic diversity. It's sort of like Europe, but actually under one sovereign Absolutely. government. Right? Absolutely. And people are able to communicate. No, across the board, there is a sense of oneness, sense of nationhood, and our language difference is not making it difficult to communicate. So it's a remarkable thing, for instance. So on all the these broad questions, the answer is yes. But there's another way a democracy must also examine. Well, the first one is necessary, it's not sufficient. And that is, have we fulfilled the potential of our people? Have we in a poor country given opportunity to everybody? Have we in a caste-ridden country with hierarchies uh, given the opportunity to every child to fulfill her potential irrespective of the circumstances of birth? And have we achieved the many things that are necessary in a modern society? Infrastructure, public amenities, um, economic growth, job creation, commensurate with our potential and our needs and relative to what the rest of the world has done. And have we instituted a system of real rule of law where everybody's rights are equally protected, not normatively, but in reality? On all these questions, the answer is a resounding no. So India, you know, you can, it depends on uh, the way you look at it. You can say it's a fantastic success. It is. I glory in that, that a, a vibrant democracy is built, a very nascent democracy without past experience, with such diversity that we could endure. Nobody believed that. A country which immediately on day one would give itself universal franchise and all liberties. 
with so much of diversity and poverty, it was unheard of earlier. Uh, nobody believed it was possible for India to endure. That gives us a sense of joy and satisfaction. But the fact that we hopelessly underperformed should make us reflect and see where we have gone wrong. So the answer is mixed. So let's start looking at this answer first from the view of the election cycle, because this year elections will dominate a lot of our discussions in newspapers, in living rooms, in offices and elsewhere. At one level, it saddens me that so much of this attention just goes towards the election. And there are so many, uh, in a way, pedestrian issues. And pedestrian sometimes becomes a literal thing because, you know, we don't have functional footpaths in most of our cities. And uh, how would you look at elections and political competition in trying to bring about this, uh, the promise of Indians that is being unmet? Our prime prime minister, when he came to power, also talked about this, right? I mean, he gave a message of development and uh, um progress and development for all and Vikas and all of that. And five years later, the record has been extremely spotty. Right? And I, I don't want us to distract ourselves into a very polemical discussion necessarily here. Mm-hmm. But how do we think about elections here? You know, I think Indians are probably more obsessed with elections than almost any other country, save the United States. Yes. There's another country which is obsessed with elections. We come a close second, but I think we might beat them. So we might beat them. And the kind of money that we put into elections actually exceeds that of the United States. The U.S. in a, in a two cycles, you know, one midterm cycle and one mid cycle, probably spends about five to six billion U.S. dollars. People say it's humongous. My God, what kind of expenditure? In India, in a cycle of five years, national, state, and local, my estimate is the total expenditure exceeds a hundred thousand crores. Wow! And just we're talking about fifteen billion U.S. dollars. Just the 2019 elections, one estimate that I got was 25,000 crores, which it's is very conservative. It's a believable number. It's a believable okay. number. So a cycle of five years because election expenditure for the state assemblies is higher than the looks of. Because you know, as the constituency shrinks in size, the per capita expenditure goes up in a first-past-the-post system. Local elections where local governments have absolutely no power in it, they're enfeebled. But actually, the cost of election is even higher on per capita basis because they're even smaller. So, you know, what does it indicate? So, First 15 billion debate, dollars. 15 billion dollars. And we are not a fraction of the small the United fraction. States is. And if it related to the purchasing power, really, it's equivalent to U.S. spending 50 billion or 60 billion U.S. dollars. I mean, it's humongous. That means we are spending 10 to 12 times more than the United States on electioneering in this country. It must give us a pause. What is happening in our country? Why? Was first the larger notion of power. What is this obsession with politics and power in our media, in our drawing rooms, uh, in our political parties and legislatures? I know it will be somewhat hurtful, but I think we have to candidly examine ourselves. There are three notions of power that dominate in our country. None of them really are the kind of power that you and I want to see in a democracy that we transfer some of our resources in the form of taxes and some of our personal sovereignty in the form of vote to you, the elected representatives and the government in order to fulfill our collective needs, whether it is rule of law, regulation and enforcement, whether it's infrastructure, education, healthcare, 
basic communities. These are the collective needs which no individual on her own, however wealthy or capable, can handle. And my life, my sense of happiness, my pursuit of my own happiness and my dreams and goals, while it depends largely on my personal efforts in my home, in my family, it is impacted hugely by what the collective does. That's all what government is. We don't have to give some great nobility and put it on a pedestal. And this is this is the social contract. This is a social contract. This is an artificial institution mankind created to serve the collective needs that we cannot otherwise fulfill. No more, no less. That is our notion of power. That should be our notion of power. But that is not our notion of power in India. Let me be candid. We have three approaches to power in India traditionally. And that is what is dominating. The first is a feudal notion that I am now the boss. I dominate. I control. I am above you. And you are inferior. This is a dominant notion in a patriarchal society throughout history, in a hierarchical society. That's why even in local governments where there's no power, no money, really, we have absolutely enfeebled, overstructured, underpowered local governments in most parts of India. And we have reservations for scheduled cars, scheduled tribes, backward classes, women, etc. And there are many poor people contesting because when you have reservations of this kind, the parties are compelled to put up people from those uh, categories who don't always have the means to spend the kind of money that is spent on outrageous sums for vote buying, etc. And yet, many of these people, they keep spending huge sums disproportionate to their income, even when there is no possibility of making money. So it's not merely corruption. It is a sense of izzat, a sense of feudal control. When you ask them, why are you doing it? Your family is getting ruined. They say, sir, unmat. We are insane. Once we get this opportunity, we think we are big. So that is the first notion of power. That's why a lot of people overspend in order to be relevant, to be recognized, to be respected, to think that they are in control. The second notion of power is personal career. What happens to me, my future, my position, my if you're a bureaucrat, my promotion. No, that's the overwhelming obsession in government. Right. Not to you know an opportunity, what can I do to serve, to make a difference, to actually improve delivery of services, education or healthcare or something else. No, it's my position. Am I in depth secretary, joint secretary, what time scale, who is senior, who is junior, who is superior, who is subordinate, and is there a cushy posting, cushy and plump posting, nothing to do with the actual outcomes. So, personal career. The third is plunder. Once the first two things are there, in a country where power is taken as a personal attribute, like a property, personal despotism is the preferred method of exercising authority in the country. And even in private sector, even in general management in India, the attitude is um, theory X, that I am the boss and I control you, the subordinates follow my orders. And in government, much more so. And therefore, in the personalized despotism, the distinction between the public and the private diminishes. <laughs> and therefore, plunder is normal. It's almost accepted socially while we all complain. So these are the three notions of power. So we reduce this whole electoral process to who is in and who is out, not what happens. That's why, you know, the, even the language we use in our newspapers and our TV channels, including the state-controlled TV and radio, I have heard hundreds of times, you must have heard and read several times too, that in this election today, the election is being held today, let's say, so many candidates are testing their fortune. In Telugu, Adrashtane Parikshin Chukutunar. So it's their individual fortunes, even our language, it betrays our biases. 
No, it is this that is causing the problem. That's the reason why so much money is put in. It's not about the outcomes. And if you see in any of these states, it's tutu meme. It's not about what needs to happen. What is the preferred policy? And therefore, it's all reduced to three things. One, buy the vote in a poor country, and there's a competitive bidding for the vote. The amounts vary from state to state, but all are going in the wrong trajectory. More and more money is being spent. The southern states minus Kerala are actually the progenitors of this. Sadly, rest of India is following suit. Because money has now become an equalizer. Both sides are spending money. And it's more like an entry barrier. It's not a determinant of success in itself. What it means is that if you spend vast sum, it doesn't mean that you get elected. But if you don't spend vast sum, it means you don't get elected. Right. We had uh, Milan Vaishnav on the show recently where I think he prefers the word gift giving. To me, that reflects our uh, the previous notions of power that you the, spoke the about. Notion. Right? I am giving you gifts, largest. The old king takes off a ring from his finger and gives it off Absolutely. to a deserving. Absolutely. Um, and because absolute. money is now an equalizer, everybody is now doing it. Initially, one party did it. Now all parties are doing it. With gusto. Therefore, freebies. And you can't deliver the collective goods that you are actually created for. You therefore give the freebies and people feel, all right, I have a short maximize my short-term gains. I don't know what a Sarkar can do. I don't really see anything much happening. Let me therefore get what I can. Therefore, all these you know, old age pensions, reimbursements, um, you, you know, the whole using bank, you know, loan waivers, you name it. Free power, free rice, you name it. That is now the currency of politics. But even that is now an equalizer. See, almost all parties are doing the same thing. Mr. Narendra Modi in 2014 stayed away from that. All uh, credit to him, but not for long. Unfortunately, his own party at the state level or even at national level have fallen into the same rut because they felt uh, not confident enough to, to really go to the people with the record. And the third is, even, even this is an equalizer because everybody is roughly doing the same thing with minor variations. And therefore, the third now is, uh, how do you divide society in a country with so much of diversity, caste, region, religion, language? It's so easy to rile people. It's so easy to unify them on these primordial loyalties. You see that from reservations to regionalism to linguistic um, uh, strife to water disputes on occasion to, of course, caste. Uh, the permanent uh, sad uh, division in this country. So we are using all this. That is the currency of politics. And in all this, it's all about who is in power. What are the collective needs to be met? The rule of law, not merely normatively, but really the rights of everybody respected, protected, efficiently administered. Infrastructure and basic amenities. Quality education without burden on the, exchequer, on the individual's uh, pockets. And quality healthcare without impoverishing the families. These fundamentals, except a bit infrastructure nowadays, in general, we have been woefully inadequate. And they're not even part of our lexicon. We'll be back with Dr. JP after this short break. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our sponsors this month, Savari Storytel and Paytm Money. 
Also, guys, I just want to remind you that we do these audiograms on our social media. Audiograms are short snippets from episodes which are interesting to listen to. Check them out. I think you'll enjoy them. Also, guys, we are doing a podcast with Ronnie Screwala called the Ronnie Screwala Podcast. And on that podcast, on the last episode, we're going to have Ronnie answer a bunch of listener questions. If you'd like to send us a question, please send it to us at dreaming at ivmpodcast.com. Also, do check out our YouTube page where we have Ronnie talking to Cyrus on Cyrus Says. We have a bunch of short clips there which I think you'll enjoy. This week on Shunya One, Sheila Ditya and I are joined by Hitesh Malhotra, the Chief Marketing Officer of Nika, to talk about various aspects of marketing. On Equity Sahi Hai, brought to you by Motilal Oswal Asset Management, Shrey Lunkar talks to Anupam about life insurance and what the product is all about. On the Habit Coach Podcast, Ashton tells you different ways to manage and control stress and how it will impact your life in a positive way. On Know Your Kanun, Amber talks about the structure, power and characteristics of the recently passed Lokpal Bill. On the Prakati Podcast, Anand Arni, ex-member of RAW and Pranay Kotastane, head of the geostrategy program at Takshashila, discuss the upcoming election in Afghanistan. On Advertising is Dead, Varun is joined by Harshad Chavan, managing director of Toast Events, to talk about the growth of digital media, influencer marketing and the famous Gap Dabbawala campaign. On the ATKT Talent Tent, hosts P-Man and Krupa are joined by singer-songwriter Naila Saldana. They discuss the strict dress codes followed by colleges in India. On Positively Unlimited, Chetna talks about different aspects of relationship, unrequited love, heartbreaks, closures, and how to find your soulmates. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back. Dr. JP, in this, I want to ask two broad questions uh, to follow up from this. One, uh, if there are well-intentioned Indians today, we can call it from the civil society, from the broader middle class, from wherever, loosely. And if you want to contest this toxic system that is keeping us from reaching our potential, how should we, one, start framing the discussion, be it in our living rooms or in a newspaper or when talking to 50 others? This is my first broad question. The second is, how should we think about change happening in the country and what should if we have some time and resources to give what should we be trying to do beyond this 2019 cycle which will sort of keep perpetuating uh, good question Pavan. first i must um, tell you things are much better than they appear not only are there decent well-meaning citizens in civil society but there are a lot of decent people in politics Please believe me, you know, the notion that all politicians are bad, they are the enemies of the people, political parties are drugs of humanity, this is all a very juvenile, silly notion. Unless you have a sense of public purpose, unless you're willing to give up something of your own for the larger cause, you would not go through this hell of politics. It's the most hellish, most difficult, most complicated mess. And one of the most hardworking. I mean, Absolutely. People wake up. Absolutely. So it's not one where you can actually yes. relax and have a good time. So if we are serious, first this notion of us versus them. They are the bad guys and we are the good guys. Now, this is part of Indian mythology. You know, the demons and the uh, suras and asuras. No, this is standard in India. Uh, all of Puranas, Hasas, and the part of that. It's all rubbish. There are compulsions. There are circumstances. They are trapped into a vicious cycle. They are victims as much as winners. First, you must understand that therefore there is hope. What is the central feature where we have gone wrong in the country? We have had a romantic notion of democracy. We thought if only we gave the people the vote and liberty, largely liberty to protest, everything else will take care of itself automatically. It's fantastic. These are necessary in a democracy, vote and shout. These are by no means sufficient. 
the real element which is necessary in democracy each citizen each family understands what's there in it for her when i vote for you pawan as opposed to let's say venkat what is it that i get and i commit mistakes because i may not be able to make a judgment but once i understand that look my family my immediate environment that i can relate to not mother india not a great you know amorphous unknown but something tangible that i see i feel and i experience if that is not improved by venkat i'll say that i'll go to pawan and if pawan is actually delivering i'll say look i don't care what caste he is i may want ideally my caste man or my religion man. but if somebody else is from my caste but is not delivering and i am hurting my family's needs are bigger than my caste unless people have the capacity to measure their vote in terms of what happens to them as a family democracy never works democracy at an aggregate level is an illusion democracy is retail no let me give a simple illustration i live in a in an apartment in hyderabad supposing i go back this morning after this weary travel waking up early in the morning and then my elevator doesn't function the lift doesn't function i had to climb up the five stories uh, i may be able to manage but i certainly get a little irritated and if my aged parents have to climb up obviously at their age is not possible i would pick up the phone because i am paying maintenance fee every month and call whoever is managing and say amit bhai kya ho raha hai why is this lift not working and if the boy fixes it well and good if he doesn't i'll holler or together we'll sit there and say look amit bhai is not able to handle it and can buy to it if they can't i'll say look i have time and energy i'm willing to do something because it's immediate it's not a noble thing it's not some great unknown it is something immediate that's what democracy is that's what it should be we have spectacularly failed in this by disempowering and killing what little existed of local governments in the country i'm not saying local governments are fantastic by nature i'm saying let them pay the price let them derive the benefit they will mature right and if you need to go to your city council just to fix your lift then the system is broken exactly it should be again. the loop so should be closed as local as possible where the community of stakeholders who have actual stakes wherever possible empower them and keep on enlarging by this principle of subsidiarity that power and responsibility must be vested as close to the need as possible once you do that with accountability systems people understand that my vote has consequences to me the reason why people are now seeking freebies and voting for them is they have seen that the vote has no consequences to them none of the things that matter to them are actually being fixed education is dismal in public sector pretty bad in low and private sector too but even the poor out of desperation hoping that their kids will have an opportunity now willing to spend money out of proportion to their income put them in private schools healthcare dismal when the poor are willing to go to private hospitals etc spend a lot of money and really get into deep debt and uh, and they give up on the government for instance rule of law you have no substitute the rich have gated communities and their own security uh, the poor they hope for the best and they suffer in silence so we created a situation where people have very little expectation and therefore they are saying already oh, want my vote i make you the raja i don't know how but there is some magic happening because there is a ballot box and uh, i press my button or whatever now what's the good i get this is what's happening i think this is the center how do you make that happen bit by bit 
For instance, why is it that there is so much of an entry barrier? A new political party, you know, in Delhi, up came up. And we all rejoice in the success. And let's hope that that will be repeated. It's not going to happen in a hurry. In Delhi, it happened because, A, it's a big city. In cities, there is a slightly better opportunity because more people feel I'm paying property taxes. I'm not getting what is due to me. There are more people who are enlightened, who can transcend either caste barriers or money. And Delhi has the highest per capita income in India, almost five times the average of the country. As incomes grow, the level of maturity of the people increases. But that's not sufficient. That alone would not have made a difference. Then it should happen in Mumbai. It should happen in Chennai. It should happen in Hyderabad. It is happening up to a point. If you try for new politics, Hyderabad is giving 10-11%. Similar thing in Chennai, etc. Delhi has gone beyond that because apart from the circumstances and publicity generated in a particular context, the central feature is Delhi is a city-state. Delhi government is the most empowered municipality. We call it a state, chief minister, cabinet. This is nomenclature. But basically, it's the most empowered municipal government. People understood that a vote in Delhi actually makes a difference in Delhi. Not all the difference, because there are many things which are not in Delhi government's control, but quite a few. It's your education, your healthcare, your water supply, your many other local things can be mattered. And therefore, people have now tried. We have killed that opportunity in the rest of the country. Though we all pay property taxes, cities are now self-reliant. They don't require state funds now because cities is where the wealth is generated. But it's the chief minister who calls the shots. If I ask our uh, listeners, just think, let's do this thought experiments. How many of you know, know the name of the mayor of your own city? All right. Perchance, because you read only recently somewhere, you, you know the mayor of your city. Do you know the mayor of Mumbai? Chennai? Kolkata? Delhi, Hyderabad, Bengaluru. Whereas we know about Boris Johnson, we know, we know about uh, Livingston, we know about uh, Giuliani, we know about uh, Bloomberg, we know about uh, Labrador, the present Mexico president or former mayor, because mayors are big presence. And yep. this was no different in India even 80 years ago exactly. or 100 years ago. Exactly. Um, Rajendra Prasad in Patna. Absolutely. Um, Chitranjan Das. Uh, Rajagopalachari in Salem. Absolutely. Rajagopalachari, Chitranjan Das, Jawaharlal Nehru, Sardar Patel, um, Prakashan Pantalu from Andhra. No, you name it, every national leader, he grew as the leader of the city. We killed it. Let alone villages. We killed the city governments. If that happens... Op can be replicated. When Op contested in uh, in Bengaluru, for instance, with the same gusto, they got 0.55% vote, Bengaluru city. In fact, five years ago, Lok Sattva got four times that vote. That means the opportunity actually is shrinking. It's getting worse, not better, the way politics is running. So the heart of the, at least urban local governance, let us push it aggressively. There are some structural impediments, we can discuss that. Rule of law, at least... Now, what CBI, the whole thing is happening now, it's good news. It's murky and all, forget it. But at least if we create an institutional mechanism where the government in office and the officials, they don't feel that they are the law. They can do pretty much what they want with impunity. That is what is happening today. But supposing you actually create a framework where there is an independent investigative agency to hold them to account. Independence, of course, anyway is there. And of course, courts are inefficient, but if you improve the efficiency there, but the real issue is not in CBI. It's only a template. Real issue is in states because rule of law is a state issue. 
It's a state subject. It's the state police. Even if you can't really handle the whole state police, if you at least the CBCID in states, equivalent of CBI at the state level, dealing with the bigger crimes, and the ACB, again equivalent to CBI, anti-corruption bureaus in states, if they are completely insulated and made autonomous, but with accountability, then there is some accountability into the system, the system, and no matter how high you are politically or bureaucratically, there is law. That is the second thing we need to do, and there is an opportunity now. Let's press ahead. The third is we have to look at a new model of federalism. Mr. Modi came with fantastic hope and expectation. He had all the ingredients. A very charismatic person, powerful speaker, very articulate. The masses were with him, and he said the right things. Whatever reason, he got into the rut of traditional politics, the voodoo politics. The myth-making, the image-making, uh, and um, ter terrific symbolism, um, from demonetization to other, some dramatic uh, fallacies without any substance and complete failure on service delivery. The day-to-day, -day, almost anywhere in the country, if you go to a government office, nothing gets done, which is a matter of right, without a bribe or delay or harassment. In school education, outcomes are appallingly bad and they're getting worse every day despite more and more expenditure. Healthcare outcomes are appallingly bad. Again, the same thing and the response is hopelessly inadequate and the wrong direction. Local governments, zero. If anything, there's more centralization today than ever before. Your uh, rule of law framework, the police, we saw torture in most cases and extracting confessions, delayed investigation, political interference. And of course, prosecution is politically driven and courts are dilatory. Agriculture is in deep crisis. Actually, crisis worsened because of the government's policies in inaction both. So on all fundamentals to alter the course of India, the government could not really move the needle. A bit of infrastructure, GST, we welcome it. But that's necessary, not sufficient. So what is the way out now? Because I don't see another opportunity like what we had in 2014 in India in the foreseeable future. If it happens, well and good, but it's unlikely. At least realistically, when you look around, you know, anything can happen only when from the existing raw material. Uh, you can't expect a miracle to come, you know, because God suddenly decided to give a bonanza to India. And even building of hope is a multi-year process. So what we should now probably look at is there is a lever of change and that is states. Whatever good has happened or is happening with all the ugliness, it is in states. But the states, while they have power of a feudal kind, they have political patronage, they can transfer bureaucrats at will, they can give contracts to whoever they want and then they can collect plunder. All these things, things are, these are the notions of power. But the real power to transform lies in making the bureaucracy efficient. States' hands are tied because all India services, card control rules, monopoly of certain people, no specialization, no parallel recruitment. This is not in states' control. The model of government in states, there is no federal government where the constitution dictates, the federal constitution dictates how the states are elected. We have one uniform rigid system, whereas our mother country initially, Britain, from whom we borrowed these systems, it has a different election mode in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and of course, House of Commons is like us. London city mayor is elected uh, differently, directly, and European Parliament still exists until Brexit is real. European Parliament is by proportionate model. So there's no reason to have a uniform model. We didn't give the states the opportunity. Local government model, it is... The most amazing thing that 
in a large and diverse country, the constitution decided how your panchayat is elected. It's ridiculous. One rule across all. Yes, sir. One six lakh panchayats. Absolutely. Five lakh panchayats. It's absurd. Very rigid model. There is no local model. Education you want to improve, right to education act. Something else you want to do, some national. So this rigid framework is the problem. And that must be loosened, even as we need to strengthen the elements of unity. For instance, federal crimes, I believe there is a need for federal crimes, so that uh, it's not the state's will to allow or not to allow a federal investigative agency to investigate. I believe interstate uh, water disputes must be a national subject unapologetically. They must handle it. And there are a few other elements of unity to strengthen. We can look at them. So national unity is sacrosanct. It's important for our liberty. For the nation and our civilization. But unity is not uniformity. Therefore, if we look at federalism in a robust way, the whole world looks at and simply adopt some of those better practices in a practical way without causing too much disruption, but doing enough to fundamentally alter the rules of the game. I think we can see a dramatic change because change happens because of the people, because every family wants to improve their lives. We must believe that. And that's true. How did Korean, by his magic, ensure the milk revolution? Did Korean come and produce milk? It is the poor, illiterate, ignorant farmers of India who understood their self-interest, responded magnificently when they could see there's an incentive. It is transparent. It is accountable. They could trust it. They know they could make their lives better. They made it better. That's what a government role is. Whereas we think that we are the Maibab and people know nothing. People are useless. They don't want to improve their lives. And we are the masters and we mess up. Dr. JP, uh, thank you so much for talking to us about this. And now I see that to do any of these changes, these fundamental structural changes to our polity, to our governance, to our way of working, it will be a marathon. Even at Taksashila, we believe that this is a marathon where, and marathon requires training, marathon requires perseverance, daily fitness, good health and everything. And we need to run it. And it's about finishing that marathon and not coming first or second or third. So in this context, what would you advise marathon runners who want to transform the country, who want to go beyond their own self-interest and do something for the larger good? What should they have at their core? Three things, as you said, a long-term approach. Uh, one of the things that disturbs me in recent times is people say, "My sorry, I gave three months of my time, I sacrificed. Uh, dramatic results haven't come. Sorry. Mankind doesn't change like that. We're talking of one-sixth of mankind. I have some sense of proportion. As I said, it's an endurance test and therefore long-term vision and a passion which is not, uh, which is a smoldering fire. Uh, it's not simply a bushfire that simply burns out. Do we have the smoldering fire, that passion that endures? And that means you must deeply imprint on your mind what exactly is happening, what needs to be done. It's not a momentary emotion because it's very Indian. Momentary emotion is very Indian. You must have it a long-term passion and clarity of goal. Two, you must have the capacity to reconcile conflicting interests. You know, I may have a fantastic idea. You may have a fantastic idea. unless we know what works in a very complex and massive country and recognizing that there are many goals and pursuing a certain goal in a certain manner may actually run counter to the other interest. 
then that's no good. Supposing my effort to strengthen local governments or states' powers runs counter to the unity and integrity of India, I'm actually winning the battle and losing the war. How do you structure in a manner that these interests are protected well? Third, be a superb opportunist in the best term. Because the power of the context is the greatest power. Circumstances actually are the most powerful things. It's very hard for young people to recognize. When somebody said this long ago, some 40 years ago, uh, everything else he said was fantastic. Sir Douglas was in a Reith Memorial lecture when I heard it. It was everything rational, logical. At the end he said, most important of all, the power of circumstances. I said, what is this old goofy saying? Uh, but the circumstances actually are very powerful. And if you know how to seize the moment, a context, and then craft the agenda that serves the nation's interest, that is the greatest opportunity. And we must have a sense of public policy in our country. The sad thing about uh, public policy is we often think a declaration of intent is public policy. A slogan or an acronym is public policy. A great PR campaign is public policy. No. Public policy is a clear definition of the goal, measurable definition, clear allocation of resources to match the goal, clear altering of institutions to alter the incentives so that each of us responds differently. Therefore, the outcome that we desire comes. A clear measurement of what's happening from time to time so that we can actually get the feedback and then indulge in mid-course correction. Wherever we did that, we did spectacularly well. Green revolution, milk revolution, and a short-term basis your election management, VIP visits, disaster management. Many people think both are the same. VIP visits <laughs> and disaster management. Large crowds, riot control. In all these things, India is pretty good. But in the long-term things, except a few successes like Milk Revolution, Green Revolution, we haven't achieved much success largely because we have not understood the meaning of public policy or designing institutions to alter the outcomes by altering incentives. Serious students of public policy and serious citizens don't have to be experts everywhere, but have a sense of it's ultimately the nation is changed because the people want to improve their lives. As Gladstone said, the purpose of a government is to make it easy for people to do good and difficult to do evil. Similarly, the purpose of policy is to alter the behavior by changing the incentives so that the net outcome is significantly better. And if we understand this, wherever we tried, I did it, wherever I served as a public official, but no, it's relatively smaller, a district level or a state level in certain sectors. Results are spectacular. Many people tried it or not trying it. Results are spectacular. So you don't have to prove it again and again. You simply have to adapt these practices. World over, we have many examples. India can do much better, needs to do much better. I'm a great optimist. There's so much of energy in our country. If the government shed their arrogance, thinking that they know it all and they do it, if they realize that people do it and their job as our representatives and servants is to allow us to do it, not to put us in shackles. And that should be the central feature of any governance transformation. I think we will do pretty well and we will recover the lost ground very quickly. Hopefully in five years' time or ten years' time, a discussion like this will be far more uh, upbeat. And we'll talk about the successes we achieved rather than the changes we have to bring about. Nothing, JP, thank you so much for that shot in the arm of brutal realism 
and relentless optimism. And I think we'll need a good amount of both of that in 2019 and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us till the end. What did you think of this episode of the Pragati Podcast? Follow the Pragati Podcast at Think Pragati on Twitter and Facebook and write to me at podcast.thinkpragati.com if you have any questions, comments or suggestions. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM website, the IVM Podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We are there everywhere. Hi, I'm Ronnie Struvalam and uh, you've been listening to my podcast and the multiple chapters of my book, Dream With Your Eyes Open. And I think to that, I've had good chats here. And I think chapter 13, my book is all about Q&As and I'm sure there are more Q&As. Happy to answer them. So send them in and happy to have a dialogue with you on that. So if you'd like to ask Ronnie a question, send it to us at dreaming at ivmpodcast.com. If selected, we'll read out your question on the last episode and have Ronnie answer it. You can also send a question to us on social media at IVM Podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you are stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune in to Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from.